Welcome back to Education Podcast, Making Your Masterpiece. I'm Cameron Zendars, and this is part one of a three-part series in which I interview Rick Warmly, who's well-respected in the education community, especially for his research and his speaking on standards-based grading. Rick has a wealth of knowledge being in education for almost 40 years and is incredibly well-versed in so many different educational topics. I'm really excited to share this interview with you, and I hope that you enjoy hearing all the different things that Rick has to offer. Without further ado, this is my first part of my three-part series with Rick Warmly. Okay, well, welcome to my podcast, Rick Warmly. I'm really excited to have you here. I'd like to just start by having you just share a little bit about your background in education with my guests. Thanks, Cameron. I'm really honored to be here. I'd be a part of your program here. This, this fall will be 41 years in the class. Well, not always in the classroom, but teaching. Uh, but t- uh, 25 years or so in the classroom. And then I left the classroom and started going around training teachers and principals and superintendents and helping people in their individual classrooms. A lot of coaching along the way. And a big part of that was writing. I find that, you know, writing about teaching helps me improve my decisions and effectiveness as a teacher. And it's synergistic because it's mutual. Teaching makes me a better writer. Writing makes me a better teacher. So I started publishing books and articles and that really took off. And now what I'm doing is full time going around the world, coaching teachers and kind of synthesizing research and bringing that to the front line for people who are very, very busy teaching all day long and don't always have time to keep up with the the latest thing in the journals and what's out there. And then trying to put that together. I, I love looking at larger patterns and making connections between things that otherwise might not be seen and, and really kind of getting into divergent thinking when it comes to education. And that's what I'm doing now is I just write books and I train teachers and I answer a lot of questions every day. Just looking at larger perspectives so people can decide locally the practical application. And I walk people through those practicalities as well. So what made you leave the classroom in the first place? So you'd mentioned you there for quite some time. What, what kind of yeah. gave you that step? Well, I, you know, the critical mass was rising. We were getting calls and emails every day. We want to come visit Rick Warmley's classroom. And I knew that my own children, my biological children, were about to come into that school. And I didn't want it to be known as Rick Warmley's school. I wanted it to be known as their school. And my superintendent at the time said, you're a good ambassador for our school district. So just go enjoy and and do what you need to do with that coaching teachers writing articles but call us in the spring before you want to come back and you know it's a large school district here in virginia we'll find a spot for you you know when you want to come back but know that you've done a lot for us and i had already done some things with national board certification i was in the very first group to do that and i had won an award with disney the the outstanding english teacher of the year and some other awards and i had been called to testify in the senate and my name was getting out there a little bit more. And then when you write an article, somebody says, oh, you wrote an article. You must be an expert. I come talk to our faculty about this. And it very organically, I was getting all these calls. And then I was at that tension. Do I leave sub plans and go out and do that? Well, as a parent, I wouldn't want my own child's teachers to always be gone training other children's teachers. I want them to, to teach my own children. And I realized it was just getting really hard to do the classroom and do these other things. And then I realized, too, that when I do, did travel around, the limited extent I did prior to actually doing this full time, I realized I was a much better teacher for having toured and seen other teachers, what to do, what not to do. I kind of feel like every teacher, I know it's a pipe dream and finances and all that, but in a perfect world, every teacher, every six to eight years should take a half year off or a year off and go just tour other classrooms. I think I'm going to be a, a dramatically better teacher 
when I go back in the classroom, after having done all this stuff for a few years, than I would have been if I just stayed in the classroom. But that's a very hard thing. I'm a very, very lucky individual. So would you recommend to administrators out there that they should look into avenues to get teachers out of their own classrooms into other school districts, other places, at least sometime throughout the years to watch what they do? Oh, yeah. I think that, you know, when you're pre-service, you don't have a classroom of your own. You don't even know what questions to ask. And what you're looking at is not meaningful to you. You're just overwhelmed trying to simulate everything. And you don't have that capacity until you enter into that expertise mode. And when you become an expert, whether it be 10,000 hours with Gladwell or whatever it might be, when you become kind of an expert in a field, you, are, you find the new training you do so much more effective and meaningful. You, you can say, oh, that really is going to work. That's not, that's meaningful. That's not. So I don't think the real training happens with teaching until you're in service. Pre-service, you can have a basic core of knowledge, but suddenly you make these great leaps when you're in service after having taught for a while. So I think it's paramount and it's actually vital to renewing oneself, you know, re-engaging, rededicating yourself to why you went into teaching in the first place, let alone broadening the repertoire because that old phrase, if all we have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. A lot of teachers kind of lose sight. And I've mentioned this in other places, but I think creativity atrophies over a while when you've been teaching the same thing year after year. And if you don't want to, if you want to fight that complacency, you're going to have to go out and expose yourself to lots of other stimuli, uh, divergent thinking, different ways of doing something and realize, you know, there's 12 different ways, maybe 20 ways to teach that one thing where you thought there was only one or two. And now I've got kids in front of me where before I would say, oh, well, it's your problem. You have to deal with it. I taught it the way everyone else learned it. There must be something wrong with you if you don't learn it that way. Is, is highly inappropriate and unprofessional. So now I've got a bigger repertoire. I don't see that stuff as a burden or a threat. I see like, bring it on, man. We'll walk this path together. We can totally solve it. This is not insurmountable. And nor am I going to create a deficit mindset and blame the kid for his own lack of learning. I'm going to own that as the instructor who's got the training, how the mind best learns there in the room. I think it's a great way of putting it. I've people will ask me a lot of times why I'm an educator and I tell them they, they think this is kind of a weird statement, but I say it's because I'm a competitor and wow. I, I love sports. I love playing different things and competing. And to me, it's a competition to be a great educator. You're, you're constantly competing with yourself and trying to become better, but you're also competing with every single different kid that comes your way and how you can better improve their abilities, get them to learn the things you're trying to get them to learn. And and some, some are harder than others, which makes it even more of a competition. That's a really good uh, analogy. And the other thing I would add to that is, what can we learn from other athletes in sports? So I think that the consummate educator is one who's willing to really observe the kids and listen and learn from them just as much as, you know, I want to compete against my own record, my own effectiveness, I want to improve and everything. But if you don't bring the kid and have a sincere respect for the kids learning journey and what they could add to your understanding and your development, then I think you're, you will succumb to a sense of, I am the Oracle. I will bestow knowledge upon you. You just receive it. And learning in that classroom is passive and not active. And then you have the nerve to blame the kid when he's not engaged in what you're doing. That, that's really a mess. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the curse of knowledge where we become yes. so uh, so caught up in what we know and, and have a hard time understanding where they're coming from. 
So you had mentioned, Rick, that you've been in this education world for over 40 years now. Clearly, you've probably learned a lot about yourself and a lot about education through this time. What's the most important role of an educator in, in today's society? Well, to facilitate the journey of another, you know, to help guide that is, is my first go-to. I am there to facilitate that, not to dictate that. And that's a different mindset. And that was a shift for me from early on. I was very much the sage in the stage versus the guide in the side. And then I realized that I find more meaning when the child makes the connections, but the kid actually remembers it longer. And I realize it's not about my success, it's about the student's success, and that my success will come when the student is successful, not prior, not during, but as they're successful. It changed for me when I realized, yeah, I could teach all I want, but I really haven't taught unless I have proof the students have learned. So what am I doing to make sure the kids have learned it? And, and then here's the other thing, that they can carry it forward and do it independent of me not just do it when I'm around or when they have certain tools. So the idea that I'm there to help some other kid or the next generation make the world their own, but give them the capacity to do that through compassion and through competence you know, is a twofold approach. I also think there's a certain amount of, how do I pass along the wisdom of what the current generation has found valuable without diminishing what you are now discovering is valuable? I want to listen to that. So I don't want to impose what, we, what my generation thinks is salient. I want to listen to what you think is salient. And maybe you know, there's a dynamic there. But always see that, yes, we're reaching forward, but we're also reaching behind to pull the ones behind us. And that we all have a responsibility to do that sort of thing. So I think that very difficult balance, it kind of goes back to you know, what do we all think should be taught in schools yeah. at every different level, which is, hugely powerful, important in social studies history, which is kind of, I understand to be your expertise, but it's very powerful in science and in English, you know, what's the, the literature canon we should be teaching as opposed to, you know, all dead white guys. Is that really all we teach in our novels? So what's contemporary, you know, all those different things, what's meaningful. And we have to open ourselves to that. And that's very scary. So there is a little bit of utility. Like I, I need to make you quite aware of the five protections under the First Amendment. So you have freedoms, you have rights, you have responsibilities. When you're stopped by a traffic officer, you know, for a traffic violation, you need to know that stuff so you can be an intelligent consumer and voter and, and a participant uh, rather than just observer or complacent or indifferent to what's going on. So there's a little bit of, I've got to bestow or get you to facilitate your participation in life, so you're a contributing member of our society in a very positive way. But I also have to help you discover which doors to open for you. They're uniquely you. And on my website, there's a little paragraph there, and you're welcome to look it up. It's you know, at rickwormley.com, where it is a bio about me. And it does talk about, the very first paragraph is, why do I teach? And it's kind of like my rallying cry. And a part of that is to help people open their eyes, but also see the view of the world through students' eyes so that I can see it anew as well, which is very refreshing, very revitalizing, but to truly give them the tools to make the world their own, which is kind of like the responsibility of one generation to another. What I'm getting from you is that this is kind of the most important job of ours. And what I've seen in a lot of your work and a lot of the things that I've read about you and what you're pretty well known for is your take on standards-based grading. How do you suppose we can use standards-based grading to accomplish a lot of the things that you had mentioned before? Or another way of putting it is, 
why do you think standards-based grading is something we should be using to help our kids learn information, learn skills, learn what we want them to be learning? Well, traditional grading doesn't lead to the learning that people think it does. And I find standards-based grading is kind of a great emancipation, uh, not to diminish earlier emancipations, but it is liberating, it's freeing, it's unshackling of those things that would tether us to ineffective instruction. So there's hope. There's way more teaching of self-efficacy. I own my learning. I'm not passive on learning. I can self-monitor because a big part of standards-based grading is the emphasis on descriptive feedback, but then revising in light of that and actually being assessed and accredited and anew and getting really into that. So if you look at the way the brain best learns from the world of cognitive science and developmentally effective instruction, you will see so many more parallels between those ideas, those active principles and standards-based grading that you don't see in traditional grading. And then one of the things that, that really draws me to it too, and, and, and I see the efficacy of standards-based grading is the ethics. And I think that teachers can be inadvertently unethical. They didn't do the deeper dive. It was kind of a superficial knee-jerk response. It was done to me, so I'll do it to them. And the math adds up quite nicely, so that must be legit, when really it doesn't. We're trying to quantify something that is not easily quantifiable. But if the math lines up, it feels like it has credibility, when really it doesn't. So if we truly see grading as accurate reporting, then there's a whole bunch of stuff we do in traditional grading that knowingly distorts the truth. And that's an ethical breach. And if I call myself an ethical, compassionate, truthful, honest educator, then I will fight to minimize those things that make me unethical, like lying, distorting truth and accuracy, and I will increase those things that are closer to what we can do. I think it's an imperfect system run by imperfect people, us. So what that means is we're like asymptotes. We'll kind of get close to it but we don't quite hit the perfect mount, but we can aspire to achieve those goals. And that's probably the best we can do because the system is not set up to do this. The system is, is not set up to do ethical teaching and, and assessment and grading, but man, we can come close. As far as you know, the advantages of standards-based grading, you're actually more effective in teaching. It lasts longer, but you're also way more ethical than you would be a traditional. So the twofold reasons, there, it's, it's a no-brainer. And truly, I have never had anybody go into standards-based grading, really come to understand what it is, and ever want to go back and kind of revisit what they did. They want to go, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this before? And it's, it's really not a software. You know, it's not a set of tools or things you buy. It's a mindset. It's that shift in culture. What would you say was the biggest stumbling block for you to get on board with standards-based grading when your school first adopted it? I had heard you mention that your school was one of the first schools to start doing standards-based grading. Was there anything in your own way of teaching that was, was hard to get over at first? And were there concepts of standards-based grading that you struggled with? Yeah, uh, I definitely struggled with compensation. I thought grades were a reward. And over my dead body, am I going to move a zero to become a 50, like a minimum F? Because I really had not thought about interval science and the unfairness of that. I, it was just a knee-jerk response. That was really hard. And then to count quizzes zero in the overall influence, because quizzes are formative. Homework counting zero. All the formative stuff that a kid would do shouldn't be high stakes. That was really hard because I was wondering, what am I going to put in my grade book? 
And how am I going to figure it out if I don't have all this stuff? And it became easier, and you, you, know, you learned some of the efficiencies of all that. So that was hard. And then really sitting down and vetting the evidence, you know, sitting down with my subject like colleagues and saying, look, when it comes to this period of history, the Freedmen's Bureau, for example, in the United States, or uh, the Treaty of Versailles, whatever it was, what do you think is excellent? What's almost excellent? What's developing? What's emergent? So that we're all really consistent? Well, if I have that conversation in all candor with you, you will find out that I don't know as much as you. And yet we're teaching the exact same thing. Yeah. AP this, IB that, level two this, whatever it is. And I'm like, ah, I would rather just close my door and have my private fiefdom. <laughs> I, I don't want you to find out the level of my ignorance. So to lay your cards on a table is politically fragile, scary, because you might not find out I know as much and you might judge me. Having that, those intense conversations where we have to negotiate what's really important and what's just nice to know is awful. If you don't have a good relationship and you don't have a real sense of your own knowledge base, maybe you're just in the first year or two and you're coming to know it in an intimate way you've never seen before. Maybe you're just barely a page ahead of the kids in whatever textbook you're using. Oh yeah, I knew that all along, but really you did not. Those particular elements were very hard in the 1980s when we, I started diving into this. Yeah, I've noticed for myself personally, some of the things that I've been looking into with standards-based grading, some of it, so much of it just makes sense. And it, it really does just kind of almost frustrate you that, you know, I've been teaching for eight years and I look back at some of the things I used to do and I think, man, it just didn't make sense. Like a zero compared to a 50, a zero just doesn't make sense when we only start the scale at 50. Or I remember one of my revelations was with rubrics where you'd have these staggered rubrics that were zero, one, two, and it'd go up to 10. And it's like, well, what is a one out of 10? And do you actually give a kid a 10% on something? Right, right, right. And you just start questioning those types of things. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I, I like a lot of what you've been mentioning and a lot of the, the work that I've read of yours, which is that we're supposed to be assessing what they've learned. And oftentimes we can, we can have this conflict of interest where we want to measure what they've learned, but then we start measuring things like, was it on time? Well, is that really a measure of what they learned? Oh, that was, that's huge, conflating the report of one thing with something else. That was hard to discern that. But I, you know, I can't blame teachers. We're all in survival mode. And we're all told we have to have so many grades in the grade book. And we're just trying to live the day out and get through it. So sometimes we sacrifice or compromise our principles here and there. And I, again, don't want to judge that because I've been there and I've done it. This concludes the first part of my interview with Rick Wormley. Tune into the next episode of Making Your Masterpiece, where Rick and I discussed in the further detail standards-based grading and how to implement that into your curriculum.